0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I'm
1: involved in the Labor Party because I believe the Labor governments help bring about important and positive change for our country. Uh, but that doesn't mean that just because there is a liberal government now, that I won't try and serve my community and and try and work in the best interests of my community. And yeah, it, it, it's it's something I, I don't think's that remarkable. I, I just think it was it was the t- the timing was right. David and I trusted each other, and uh, and we we both understood that at that moment the community needed unity. And uh, yeah, I was pleased to work with him.
0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. We are now also sponsored by Creole, who are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose. Creole are committed to redefining the Australian drinks market. The team at Creole believe that Australian fridges should be full of drinks made from real ingredients that provide a healthy alternative and taste amazing. As loyal Humans of Purpose listeners, you can enjoy a 15% discount on their beautiful range of healthy sodas. Just hit the link in our show notes or head to creole.com.au, click shop and enter discount code HUMANS OF PURPOSE on checkout. Today in our season finale, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Josh Burns, MP. Josh is the federal member for McNamara. This is my electorate and I brought Josh on because I'm inspired by his policy positions and activity on a number of fronts. Josh has advocated for housing as a human right. He has a keen interest in tackling social and economic inequality, as well as increasing youth and diverse voices in Parliament. He's been a proud Jewish voice in Parliament and has led the way with bipartisan collective action during COVID-19 to support the local community. This is a great conversation where we cover the above topics and also green energy solutions, connecting with community and far, far more. Enjoy this episode. We'll be taking a short break for a few weeks and in the meantime we'll be doing some informal episodes during our travels while we're away with family. We'll also be sharing our top-ranking podcasts and a list of recommended episodes to plug into for holiday enjoyment. The team at Humans of Purpose is wishing you a safe, healthy, fun and restorative break. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh as much as I did and see you in early 2022. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Josh Burns, MP. Welcome to Humans of Purpose, Josh. Mike, it's my pleasure. My absolute pleasure. How are you? Well, I'm good. I think last time I saw you, we were both equally uh, sweated out and exhausted post F45 uh, Carnegie. How are you traveling now?
1: Look, I I was in much better nick in those days, Mike. <laughs> COVID, COVID <laughs> has been very generous to me. Uh, no, it's... it's like many people, uh, I, I did really enjoy my hour of exercise going for a bit of a jog. But, I, I yeah, you, you, you were an athlete. I was, I was just a plotter in the back of the class, mate.
0: Look, many reconstructions ago, that, that's a fair assessment. But, um, mate, it's great to reconnect. Um, how have you gone generally just through COVID lockdown and um, how are you feeling about sort of things opening up now?
1: Uh, COVID, COVID has been devastating for so many people. And I think, it you know, like the disease itself, it came in waves and and in many ways, I was you know, I feel very privileged and, and fortunate to have had a job throughout COVID. Many people have had such economic insecurity, and and you know and 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 they also presented to, to me and and told me their story and told me their hardship, and it was uh, it was extremely difficult for so many people, and uh, and so I, I consider myself very lucky that that I I. I you know i've had a, had a job throughout the pandemic but at the same time uh, i i you know i'm very grateful for for the way in which people have responded and the way in which society has responded it's been huge sacrifices mike that people have been asked to perform and to do not just in their personal life not just in their own well-being but their businesses as well and and for the most part victorian's and australians have done an incredible job and i think Hopefully, that, you know, there, there are small signs for optimism. Obviously, the vaccinations are, are incredible. They are saving lives, uh, but also some of the antiviral technology that is potentially around the corner. Mm. Um, there is some really exciting uh, pieces of medicine that potentially uh, could, could mean that this, this – that it, it may mean that the worst of this pandemic is behind us, which, um, which is really uh, something so hopeful.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll come back to that because there's a bit to talk about in terms of um, how you managed COVID um, in your office and how you collaborated a- across the mm. island with, um, with David Southwick. So I want to talk about that a bit later. But uh, before sure. we get into that, I would just love to hear a bit about what is the journey that you took into politics? And, um, you know, is it something that you're kind of like in school and thinking, I want to be a politician, uh, I'm just going to try and do that? Or how does it kind of come about?
1: Well, well, I, I wasn't such a, a, a weirdo in high school that I thought <laughs> oh, I really want to be one of those guys. Uh, that that's that's that wasn't the case. Although I was, I was always fascinated in by politics, and I, I cared about issues, and I went to rallies, and uh, and I was. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's a it's it, it. No. I was the social action captain of Mount Scopus Memorial College so that was a that was the the captain or the prefect that that was all about engaging the school in in uh, charity work in in social justice causes in in those sorts of things so I I did have an interest in it as a child and as a young person but and then I studied it at university I studied politics and history but I uh, I didn't have a family member. I didn't inherit my seat from my father or anything like that, which is sort of the way which many political dynasties uh, have operated in Australia. It's it's more about, it. for me, it was about, uh, I was working in a, in a publishing company and I, I didn't really, I didn't really, I kind of, I remember there was one day, Mike, and I was sitting at my desk and. You know, I I I didn't look at my boss. I looked at sort of my boss's boss's boss. And I thought, am I going to spend the next 10 or 15 years in this place getting there? Because that's how long it's going to take. And, you know, and that's that's where I'd be. And I just couldn't I couldn't see myself investing in the journey. I couldn't see myself wanting to uh give everything I had to to get to that destination. And then and then I I you know I I um Wrote my local MP a, a, an email saying I'm just a young guy interested in politics and willing to come and be involved in whichever way, shape or form. And and I, I remember sitting there thinking, you know, would I want to spend the next 10 or 15 years getting somewhere in politics? Would I want to be on that journey? And it didn't matter the fact that I literally started at the very bottom. I I, st- I was, you know, I was a not much more than a courier uh, in my early days. Uh, Doing admin and uh, and printing the papers and stuffing the envelopes, but it was it was the start of a journey, and I was willing to. I wanted to just be a part of politics. I wanted to be a part of of the debate. I wanted to be a part of uh, policy discussions and ideas, and I wanted to be a part of uh, potentially being involved in progress and and uh, and societal change. And yeah, and and so I started as a volunteer, and because I gave. Everything I had into it, I managed to then get full time work, and then I ran as a candidate in 2014 in an unwinnable seat in the state election, and then uh, I managed to get a job working for a guy called Dan Andrews, who I'm sure people would have heard of by now, uh, and uh, and then the opportunity came up to run for the seat of McNamara and it was a really difficult decision to say. Yes, I want to do this, and all of the sacrifices that came. Uh, but it was, you know, there aren't many opportunities to to run for the federal parliament in a seat that you can win. And it came up, and it was, it was, yeah, something I'm extremely grateful for to not only have the chance to be a candidate for the Australian Labor Party in the federal parliament, but also to be a member of parliament to represent the the people uh, of McNamara from Port Melbourne down to Elwood and all the way through Caulfield and everywhere in between. It's 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 the greatest privilege of my
0: working life, and it's the best region ever,
1: <laughs> ever, ever. We <laughs> you, you, we we, uh, we often, if if an MP does a speech in the parliament and says, "Well, I'm Speaker, I'm pleased to rise to talk about the best electorate in the country, <laughs> the great electorate of McNamara, even even. Even members on your own side usually heckle you at that stage <laughs> yeah. uh, because everyone, everyone, you know, everyone says their electorate's the best. But no, mine actually is and, uh, and proudly so.
0: Fantastic. And, and on your journey, I, I don't want to cause any um, spot fires in asking this question, so I'll pose it to you subtly. Were, sure. were there any particular role models that kind of stood out that, that made you say, you know, this is the guy um, dissimilar to the publishing boss, but, like, this is a politician who, who I want to emulate the leadership style?
1: Oh, there's one thing I really admired about Julia Gillard is that she, uh, she, she, even under immense political pressure, she always was focused on the policy, and she was focused on what, what does, what does being involved in the labor movement and as a labor leader involved, and and you know, and in the time of the greatest uncertainty in her prime ministership she focused the country and introduced the national disability insurance scheme something that will for generations change the lives of Australians she invested in public schools and tried to bring up the standard of public education uh, she did amazing things in office and and that that was something that as a young political staffer i i um i was i was inspired by and then you know of course to work for daniel andrews you you see someone who is is an incredibly hard worker someone who uh who cares deeply about uh about using using government and what can government be there for and and how can you you know he 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 used to talk about the gift of government being gifted government and 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 uh, that's something i try and emulate a little bit in in that especially from opposition at the moment we we don't we aren't in government it's been a long time since the labor party has been in government and Daniel, Daniel talks, you know, used to talk about not wasting a day and and having this precious gift from the people. And, you know, of course, of course, the pandemic has been extremely stressful and people will have strong opinions about about different public health rules and whatnot. But I learned from Daniel Andrews that government is about doing things. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's a privilege to be in government. and And that's something that I hope one day uh, I'll get to serve in an upcoming future Labor
0: government and, and potentially in a in a significant role in that. Yeah, fantastic. Um, well, one thing that sort of came to mind to me, and when you sort of spoke particularly about um, COVID public health regulations, et cetera, do, what do you think are some of the key things that the general public doesn't understand about how policy is made that you've come to understand um, as as a sort of key player in in your role? Uh I think I mean uh,
1: government is government is a clunky big organization the wheels of government move very very slowly and uh, and and it requires it requires political pushes in order to make things happen and uh, with political will I think we saw throughout the pandemic how quickly government can make things happen one example right is is that the federal government had this plan over the next 10 years to be able to introduce telehealth to Medicare, which is the consultation with doctors, not face to face, but via either Zoom or on the phone. They did it in 10 days in the care in, in, in the pandemic. And I, I think that there another example is this the city of Melbourne and the state government had a, a, a in the early days of the pandemic, they were worried about people who were homeless uh spreading catching coronavirus and spreading it throughout the community and uh and basically there was a collaboration between the state government and local councils that within about 3 days they ended homelessness and 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 people were put into hotels in order to protect themselves and also uh, other members of the community now obviously that solution wasn't sustainable and and I think the med- the telehealth you know there there are you know best medical practice would suggest that GPS and doctors need to be able to inspect and treat and see patients but they are two examples of of how government can get things done quickly if there is the political will and I think sometimes the public service and, and politicians were 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 uh, Actually, let me rephrase it. I think the pandemic really shook the foundations of public servants and politicians in a way that forced them to get things done quickly and I think that that should be our aim not uh, you know not not in case of emergency but uh, gov- government shouldn't shouldn't be erratic but it should be ambitious and I think we can be.
0: Well said. Um, You you did touch on homelessness there. I'm sort of keen to explore um, a bit about the housing market in Australia and sort of the current. There's an excellent Four Corners a few weeks ago on the state of um, housing affordability or lack thereof, um, and maybe homelessness being a result of that or people just being in very difficult living situations. Do you consider um, housing to be a fundamental human right?
1: Well, it's a it's a good leading question. Uh, I, I've I've written that it should be, and I've written that that uh, that we should legislate in Australia to make housing a human right because I think it would lay it would add a layer of accountability by government to help provide more housing for Australians. But let's let's so so that, so my answer is it's it's it should be, and we don't really have the legal framework in Australia yet. Um, but let's take a step back. You can't talk about housing in Australia without acknowledging that it that it's a spectrum, right? So on one end, you have new houses and people who are looking to buy a home. Uh, you have renters. You have people who uh, live in subsidized housing, and then you have people who can't even afford that. But the price of all of them are affected by other parts of it as well. And the price of renting is affected by the cost of new houses, which is affected by uh, the cost of renting, which is you know which again has an effect on the cost of social housing and affordable housing subsidized housing. We, we don't have enough homes in Australia uh, and and the ability for Australians to get into the housing market is becoming dramatically harder and harder as each year goes on. Our, our wages in Australia have stagnated, but the cost of housing has gone up astronomically. Now, that's that's also meant that people who are earning higher incomes are being pushed into the rental market and it's pushing up the price of rental properties. Now, COVID has been a big disruptor in some ways because there is less migration and less overseas disruption of our our housing sector, Uh, but but money is also cheap. Interest rates are very low Mm -hmm. at the moment and that's meant that people are borrowing crazy amounts of money uh, and pushing up the price of housing. And there has been calls to increase the rates of uh, in interest rates, uh, but the Reserve Bank has made it clear that they are resistant to that, over at least over the next year or so. So, I think house prices are still going to increase over the next year or so, but they may stagnate. There may be a correction to the market, but ultimately, I still think house prices are going to go up faster than people's wages, which, which is going to mean housing is less and less affordable. Uh, so, I I I really worry about about what this means for younger Australians, Mike. Because if you retire in Australia uh, and you are able to get into the housing market, the average in twenty eighteen the average amount your of your net worth was around a million bucks. It was nine hundred eighty thousand dollars. So you would you would retire in about nine hundred eighty thousand dollars worth of you know assets minus, minus liabilities. Um, but you know net, net worth of you basically retire with a million bucks. If you didn't, that, w- that was about $40,000. And so it's it's a huge wealth creator in this country to be able to own and pay off your own home. But if you don't get into the housing market by the time you're 35, you, you're basically locked out. And, and with all of these extra pressures being put into the housing market, when you combine that with the fact that wages have stagnated, Workers become less secure. Casualised workers become more prominent. Superannuation has become uh, has become um, harder to acquire for more people. Uh, we we have the fastest growing cohort of homeless Australians right now: women over fifty five, and it's it's a pretty bleak picture. And and so I wrote about this, and and one of the suggestions was to make housing a human right because it would mean that. Governments couldn't turn people away from housing and and the need for housing, uh, and and therefore it would require governments to build more houses. Um, but but I also wrote that government governments need to look at this issue, and 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 try and find ways for people to enter into the housing market, to make rentals more secure, to provide more affordable and social housing, uh, and and certainly more housing for those people who are, who are experiencing. Domestic violence or or abuse in the home, um, it's it's essential to building up the rest of, of your life and the, and the rest of your um, security. So it's a big problem, and it's one that isn't going to be fixed quickly. But it's one that I'm focused on doing something about in my career.
0: And no doubt that it's um, dramatically increasing inequality and it's hurting those groups that are the most vulnerable already. It's not so much a problem. If you can afford to be in the housing market at any stage, you're going to be fine. But the way things are trending, there's a lot of people who are going to be suffering. So, you know, they talk about solutions like social housing, but um, potentially supply side issues as well, like just not enough um, property at market or not enough stock.
1: It's a massive issue, and governments—governments, um, governments, to be honest, there hasn't really been an appetite from the federal government to do much about housing. The, the, the Morrison government, uh, especially social housing, haven't, haven't been interested at all. They have done some things to help build. They've got this—they've got this—this uh, this financial agency called the Nific, which is basically designed to provide cheap bonds or loans to superannuation companies to build affordable homes. And it's good, right? Like it does good work. And Morrison, to his credit, actually was the one who set it up. But it's not like it's not policy. It's 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 not it's not going to solve the problem. It's it's something that's good that's better than nothing. And we need to be honest about what the actual picture is and the number of people who are being locked out of the market. If you've got if you've got a growing number of tens of thousands of people who can't afford to get into the housing market, and you only help build you know, a thousand homes. Well, it's better than nothing, but it's not it's not going to help solve the housing strains and the strains in the housing uh, sector. So, uh, my criticism of the government is that there actually needs to be a plan. There needs to be some honesty about the size and scope of the problem. Uh, we need to be building thousands of, of social housing properties a year in the vicinity of sort of 7,000 a year, and then affordable homes somewhere closer to sort of 20,000 to subsidise the, the number of builds that are being done just by by property developers. And if we do that, then we are going to see more people being able to afford more homes. But it's it, there, there's just no appetite from the federal government at the moment to be involved in that level of building. And uh, and the Labor Party does have policy to, um, to get building and to pour some concrete and to get things uh, moving. And, and I'm really excited and hopefully we get a chance to implement it.
0: Fantastic. Let's shift away from policy for a little bit, give your brain a bit of a break, and my brain too. Um, you're a very young man, so I, I'm curious what it's been like for you being one of the youngest, the youngest federal MP? In- I am the second youngest member of the House of Representatives. Yeah. Yeah. So quite tremendous. I mean, it makes me kind of consider my whole existence and what I might be doing wrong. And Oh, know, no,
1: don't, don't. Um, it, the, the House of Reps is a, a fantastic place of weird and wonderful people, but... Uh, <laughs>
0: What's it been like? Sort of being a, do you feel like a junior, and also um, just extending that? I mean, what's the diversity like that you're seeing in in Parliament, and how could it be better?
1: Well, so there's a few things in there. I mean, I mean, it's it's a privilege to be a member of Parliament, and and I, you know, when I when I speak in the Parliament, I I don't just speak for myself. I speak for the people that I represent, and I I try to reflect their Uh, Their wishes and their their views and their ideas as much as I possibly can and and sometimes you know you have to you have to be honest with people and there are disagreements with people I mean you know I've 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 had people writing to me complaining about vaccinations and I just you know I just fundamentally disagree with that and I've been honest about that Uh, that these things are saving lives and the conspiracies you read on TikTok and here on TikTok are not are not accurate. but, but, but for the most part, you know, I do feel like when I go into Parliament, I am a bit more confident because I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for the people that I represent, and I feel like I need to uh, give them a strong voice and give them a, a voice that is uh, that is um, informed and 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 hardworking and 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 you know trying my best to, to act in their interests. Uh, and in terms of diversity i i think we in the parliament's certainly improved uh but there's there's a long way to go i think we i think we we are still not entirely reflective of the diverse multicultural parts of australia i think we we you know the labor party is doing a pretty good job on 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 that uh, we we we're, we're almost a parity on gender equity um but there are parts of society that that aren't as represented in the federal parliament. And I think it's, you know, but there are some fantastic candidates at the upcoming election that I think if they are elected will will, you know, they will make a profound difference for them and and their communities. But so I think I think culturally and linguistically, linguistically diverse backgrounds need to be better represented in the parliament. But uh, and, and I think the Liberal Party has a big problem with gender equity, but uh but on, on the whole, I would say that. Um, that yeah that there has been improvements there's a way to go but into personally to answer your question I, I I'm not intimidated by being a young person I feel like it gives me in some ways an advantage I, I also feel like I need to you know I, I don't I don't seek to be someone who who thinks they know all the answers and you know and and I well I'm only in my first term and I I, I think you have to Constantly respect the craft and respect the job, and and how dynamic and diverse it is, and and you always have new things during the day that you you don't expect. So yeah, if you stay humble and you work hard, uh, it doesn't really matter how old you are. You you can you can hold your own in the in the
0: House of Representatives. One thing that I thought was um, unique and quite impressive during the COVID period was the the collaboration between yourself and the state Liberal Party member for Caulfield, David Southwick, yep. um, just in how you talked about the the sort of local response to COVID, um, vaccinations, um, what's to be done, and and sort of that united approach in how you did press releases together and a lot of things like that. How. How often do you see that? Because I've never seen that before in in politics, um, local yeah. kind of cross party um, collaboration on important topics. Is this something that you've kind of decided to to lean into, or? Um, look, I, I think I think
1: so. David and I have known each other for a long time, and I think we've built up a you know a bit of trust as well, which is which is important. And and it's not it's not an easy thing to build up in politics. Is that you know, is that in order to in order to uh, you know work with someone even on your own side, uh you, you know, you need to build up trust and you uh you, you know and you can't fake that. But I I you know I have I've seen David up close and and I think we you know we like there are obviously things that we disagree about and that's you know that's healthy. Like it's there's things I disagree with my brother about. Like it's 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 it's, it's there are many things. Um but but it's you know but that doesn't mean you can't work collaboratively with them. And I think the decision that David and I, you know, we were talking about this, and and the decision we made was that that during the pandemic was so stressful for people uh, that no one had any appetite for politics. What people just wanted was help, and it wasn't in either of our interests to to try and. One up each other, or to have the last say, or to bring down each other, or to be critical. It was actually in our interest to um, to uh, um, to try and work together, and and more, not just in our interest though. It was um, it was in the interest of our community, and yeah, I I, um, I found it really rewarding to work alongside David because. Not because it was anything special, but because I felt like during an important time, uh, there was some really, you know, you might remember there was some there was some pretty controversial incidents that happened. And I felt like there was so much animosity that people were showing towards one another that it was important to be able to show that we're going to get through this and we're going to get through it together and we need to try and work together. And I, yeah, I'm really grateful that David was willing to reciprocate that sort of collaboration and yeah i i i i you know i think it's important you know, i i've also worked with dave Sharma on um on uh on the extradition of malkhalifa and he was he was outstanding to work with on that he, we also worked together on the appeal to bring home Kylie Moore Gilbert who was held in iran uh, so so you know and, and more broadly i'd say that parliamentary business you know most of the time the opposition and the government work together in the interests of the country you know we're, for the most part, we're there because you know we we want to try and help. We don't want to try and uh, tear down. We want to try and help people. And you know, I'm I'm involved in the Labor Party because I believe the Labor governments help bring about important and positive change for our country. Uh, but that doesn't mean that just because there is a Liberal government now, that I won't try and serve my community and, and try and work in the best interests of my community. And yeah, it, it, it's it's something I, I don't think's that remarkable I, I just think it was it was the t- the timing was right David and i trusted each other and uh and we we both understood that at that moment the
0: community needed unity
1: and uh yeah i, I was pleased to work with him
0: Fantastic. Um, Just thinking a little bit about, you know, being a young man, being a Jewish man, Jewish education, Jewish upbringing, strong um, cultural Jewish identity, how much of that do you sort of take with you into federal parliament and obviously McNamara being like a very Jewish um, uh, represented uh, region, um, how much does does sort of uh, Jewish issues play into what you choose to advocate for or raise in parliament? Um. Look, I, I,
1: I'm I'm a proud Jewish Australian, and I I have never ever shied away from that. And I never will. That's part of who I am, and it's part of my history and my family's history. Uh, I'm the 22nd Jewish member of the federal parliament, uh, and and the 13th ALP Jewish member, more than all of the other parties combined. Uh, but but I also, you know, the Jewish community represents about a 10 of my electorate, and and you know, I have 90% of my electorate who, who obviously not Jewish. And, and I I think that, yeah, I'm I'm very conscious that I I represent not the Jewish community. I represent the seat of McNamara and, uh, and that my time and my energy needs to be evenly spread as much as possible uh, to cover all different corners of, of, and all of the different interests of, of my, of my electorate. Um, But, but, you know, I, I do feel privileged and proud to to be a voice for the Jewish community. I think it's um, I think it's a great thing that that I can hopefully play a constructive role in giving the Jewish community representation on the federal level and advocate on important issues. I, I was really pleased that the Labor Party was the first party to formally sign up to the IRA definition in combating anti Semitism, and then I really was pleased to see the government. Uh, join us in, in adopting the ira definition. Um, I, you know I, I think uh, being able to um, being able to represent the the incredible sisters in the extradition of, of Malkhalifa uh, and, and that process in a way that that the Jewish community didn't feel like this was an attack on them but rather for them and, and in collaboration with them I think that gave me a unique opportunity to do that um so I, I think it's 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 a part of my job. it's certainly not my entire job and i um and i you know i don't I don't want to be known as as a Jewish member of parliament. I want to be known as a strong member of parliament um who, who you know who proudly represents the Jewish community and others in my electorate but uh, but yeah it's it's undeniably a part of who I am and a part of my job and and I hope I do
0: it uh, to the best of my ability. Very well said. Um, I I wonder what, I mean, you must have thousands or tens of thousands of conversations with residents of McNamara every month. Um, what are some of the key challenges and opportunities that are arising for the for the residents of McNamara in the months and years to follow? So
1: it's a really good question. Mac- McNamara is a fascinating part of Melbourne. It, it's it's got uh, people from all different walks of life uh, and 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 all different you know, challenges as well. Let's start from the top and work our way under, our way down South Bank. Uh, and, and in that, uh, one of the iconic parts of South Bank is obviously the Arts Centre and the Arts Hub around there. The COVID pandemic has been devastating for our arts and events sector. Devastating. When the Prime Minister stood up and said in that March press conference in 2020, we're, we're going to limit gatherings to 500 people or less. What what that meant for people in the arts and events sector was that six months of work was gone instantly, and Victoria obviously has been you know hard hit by this pandemic, and it takes time for this sector to get back on their feet. So uh, that that's a massive challenge, and uh, and you know we've lost a lot of businesses on the way, and it's been extremely difficult. Many businesses, arts businesses, missed out on JobKeeper uh, because of the sort of project nature of that work. So. It's been, it's been a, it's been really challenging. And that's something that, that uh, we're we're working closely with the sector. Uh, We've just done a parliamentary report about what things we can be doing to rebuild the sector. And I'll, and I'll continue to work on that. Moving down into towards, uh, you know, through Albert Park and Middle Park and into St. Kilda, hospitality and retail has, has obviously been extremely hard hit. And St. Kilda is a, a place where people visit, you know, it's, it's, it's a, when you come to Melbourne, you go to the city, and you also you know you go and see St Kilda, and uh, it's the, the lack of tourism and the lack of people coming has meant that not only are there less people in restaurants, less people visiting, uh, but the whole economy of St Kilda and, and the surrounding suburbs has been really hard hit. Uh, we, we, as soon as we can, we need to open our doors again to the international visitors because it, it's it's so important for our local economy and our local community uh, to have people filling the airbnbs, visiting our cafes. Uh, you know, buying our products, going to our stores—that's um, that's essential. Uh, and and you know, and then sprinkled throughout the entire electorate, one of the big challenges is the cost of housing. Housing for young people is is astronomical, and I think um, I think whether you're in Caulfield, whether you're in Elwood, whether you're in uh, Albert Park, Middle Park, the cost to live around where you may have grown up or where your family exists is just. So so high. So uh, that that's something that many people, you know, this is a place where they love and they they want to stay close to their family, but it's it's becoming harder and harder. And the final thing I think that that unites us all, the big big challenge that we're going to have post the pandemic, is tackling climate change. And uh, what does Australia do? And the decisions we make over the next election will set us up not just for the next few years, but the next ten years, twenty years. It'll set up our economy. It'll set up uh, how our environment survives. We are a bayside community. We we are, are on the sea. Uh, we are on the on the edge of the bay, uh, which leads into the sea. Um, but but you know it's 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 a we, we have to protect our natural environment. We have some amazing natural environments on our doorsteps. Um, but but it's my view that we need to do more, not just for our economy, but also for our environment
0: to tackle climate change yeah very well said, and it actually um, nicely segues into one of my final main bullet points. Um, and that's just sort of where you stand on um, nuclear power and deriving energy yeah. that way and w- whether that's a sort of viable green alternative to fossil fuel energy production.
1: so it's a really it's a really uh, i mean I, I I really like talking about this issue because it's 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 a really interesting issue that leads on to whole different um other conversations. but essentially i have no problems with nuclear technology you know we 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 currently in australia have a nuclear reactor in sydney in lucas heights which is a it's a fascinating piece of technology it's an open water reactor which you know which uh enriched uranium gets uh gets reacted uh and and heat, you know heat is generated and nuclear compounds are or 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 um chemistry uh, com- chemical compounds are created uh, and therefore they help form uh, medicines and uh, compounds that help detect cancers so we already use nuclear technology in australia to help treat people with cancer it's 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 fascinating and i i've literally looked into this big huge pool and down the bottom is australia's nuclear reactor right so i have no issues with nuclear technology um you know it's used for good in australia my, my criticism with nuclear or, or the idea of nuclear energy is, is that it's so expensive, right? Like the amount it costs to, to, to build a nuclear reactor is is astronomical. And we would need a much bigger reactor than the one we have at Lucas Heights in Sydney. Um, we would need a, what they would call a large-scale nuclear reactor, which is, you know, it, it could cost between, you know, I mean... South Korea are building them for the UAE for sort of six or seven billion dollars but they're they're on the cheap and these are not things that we would probably build on the cheap these are these are things that we would build with all of the safety mechanisms in built into it and you know it would cost in the vicinity of ten to twelve billion dollars you know potentially more uh, they take a long time to build you're talking about ten to fifteen years um, so so i i i think that yes it is a low emission technology uh, yes there are other countries around the world that are using it but they also made decisions a long time ago to invest in nuclear technology. So my criticism of it is not that it's not it's not useful or a consideration. It's that it's just it would take too long to build and it would be like how many Australians are going to want to increase their power bills by like fourfold, fivefold. It's it's like no one's going to volunteer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, in saying that, though, the, the obvious retort from a lot of people who are advocates for nuclear energy um say that small modular reactors are are the future of it and these are smaller type reactors that potentially could be built in factories at a much larger scale and then sort of shipped out so instead of going out to a place and building a nuclear reactor at that place you'd, you'd build it somewhere and then ship it out because they're they build it they create energy on a much smaller scale th- th- these are these have the potential of, of being interesting and of being you know we, we should observe them and see what what comes of them um, but but they are there's no example of small modular reactors currently being built at scale in any factory around the world and then shipped out and dramatically reducing the cost of nuclear energy. It just doesn't exist. Um, now I, I, it's my view that we should keep an eye on that technology and see, see what comes of it. But at this stage, you know we, we need to transition away from fossil fuel energy, And the good news is, is that we have an option that is not only able to be installed far, far quicker, but it is uh, much, much cheaper to generate. And that is a combination of either wind power, uh, both onshore wind power and offshore wind power, and also large-scale solar power, renewable energy. And both of them require firming capacity, which is basically, you know, it, it doesn't always. Chris Bowen says, um, you know, just because it doesn't rain all the time doesn't mean we don't have clean drinking water. Just because it doesn't, the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing doesn't mean that we can't store energy. So we, you know, we, uh, we need to help store energy by renewable, uh, by renewable uh, generators. Uh, so, you know, in batteries, in hydro uh, and, and. Uh, and use that um, as the capacity. Tasmania already is at 100% renewable energy with a combination of hydro and wind. South Australia is well above 60% renewable energy. Uh, Victoria is heading up towards uh, 30, just over 30% renewable energy. New South Wales um, is, is a bit further behind, but they've got a pretty big renewable energy program. Uh, the Northern Territory will get 50% by 2030. Like that. That's the future, and and I think uh, nuclear energy is is has the potential if small modular reactors make it much cheaper for it to be a consideration. But we really don't need it at the moment. There are other options that are cheaper, cleaner, uh, and and uh, yeah, are available to us right now.
0: Just to play the other side of the fence um, briefly, a common argument is that we just need to um, overnight shut down every coal power station um, in Australia and just transition mm. now. But um, what do you make of that, given sort of a lot of the alternatives are maybe not quite there yet or limited in their output or cost issues?
1: Well, I mean, you know, how many Australians are going to, like, do, do, we, do we want to have hospitals that don't have power? You know, do we want fridges to not have power? Like, we we need to survive. And we need to live. And I think it's the job of government to, part of the job of government is to provide a source of reliable and and affordable energy now the that that for hundreds of years was powered by coal fired power stations it, it turned australia into a prosperous nation but but one of the things we are you know we are the science has settled on now is that we need to generate energy in a way that that doesn't emit as much greenhouse gas emissions and and coal is a high emission intensive technology and uh, and it's also a far more expensive way of generating energy. So, as our coal fired power stations shut down, that's not going to happen overnight, but they are over the next decade, many of them are going to close. And it is just not viable to build new ones. What we need to do is to have a plan to uh, introduce renewable energy uh, at a rate where they can replace the, the coal fired power stations so that we can guarantee affordable energy, we can guarantee reliable energy. Uh, and And guarantee low emission technology energy, and that's something that requires leadership, but without being too cheeky, it also would require a federal government willing to have a
0: national energy policy uh, and uh, and and we don't have that at the moment. Very nicely said my friend josh um been wonderful chatting with you as always. How can people um connect with you and learn a bit more about your work well
1: the you can always check us out on all of the usual social media platforms uh it's josh burns mp is the usual uh the usual uh tags or ats or whatever they are but uh yeah otherwise otherwise you can feel free to give my office a call or send me an email Uh, if you google me um you'll either find me or a mixed martial artist who's uh far scarier (laughs) than me uh, who also has my name Uh, but but, uh, yeah, no, ha- happy to connect. And if anyone is interested in politics or getting involved in the next election, uh, by all means, reach out and, and we'll
0: uh, look forward to seeing you all in the hustings. Just give a quick uh, shout out to Josh. It's a fantastic website, joshburns.com.au. I've got two screens here and I've got the real Josh Burns on the right. And I've got videos of the other Josh Burns out in the community on the left. So it's, it's double vision at the moment, but it's fantastic. Oh,
1: you, you deserve a, a, a strong drink after seeing both of them.
0: <laughs> mate, hang on for a second and we'll debrief, but thanks for coming on. Thanks, mate. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.